Good evening and welcome to ADH TV. You are watching The Fred Paul Show in the time slot usually occupied by my colleague, broadcasting legend, Alan Jones. The great man is recovering from surgery at the moment and I'm sure you'll join me in wishing him a full and speedy recovery. Well, check out this grab from a time when not only Australian sports stars punched above their weight on the international field, so too did Australian spectators. Well, the likelihood of something like that happening now is almost non-existent. And not only because you're not allowed to light up a durry at an outdoor sporting stadium anymore. Australians are also less healthy, as this graph of obesity rates reveals. The proportion of us carrying around an unhealthy excess of kilograms tripled from 1975 to 2016. So despite the government constantly reminding us to butt out the ciggies, refrain from drinking alcohol and myriad other nanny state health messages we are bombarded with, we're becoming unhealthier. And there's another reason why a spectator sitting two rows beyond long off at an international one dayer at the MCG is unlikely to coolly catch a six these days. We're no longer any good at sport ourselves. A study by the Boston Consulting Group for the Australian Government in 2017 found that our participation in sport was declining, partly because schools were marginalising it and adults were leading increasingly sedentary lives. Two thirds of adults and a quarter of children were overweight. The report concluded, quote, Australia's rich sporting tradition and the many benefits we enjoy as a result of our sporting culture is at risk of being eroded. And we risk transitioning from a nation of active sport participants to a nation of passive sport consumers, unquote. Well, if the latest ratings for major, major sporting events are anything to go by, we're not even passive sport consumers anymore. The grand finals of both the major football codes this year were woeful. The AFL pulled in the lowest average audience and the NRL scored the lowest average metro audience since Oztam records began in 2001. This week's Melbourne Cup, the race that used to stop a nation, also attracted its lowest audience in 20 years. International cricket remains popular, but the local Big Bash League has lost so many viewers since it peaked in 2016 that one anonymous TV executive recently told the Daily Telegraph in Sydney the league was almost worthless. So, what's going on? Well, here's one answer. So they're going to stand in solidarity with their Indigenous brothers and sisters and all people of colour. No place for racism. And the knee is an expression of that support. Strength and diversity, making for a better football community. That was in response to the, to the George Floyd death a couple of years ago. They were kneeling to show response 
for, a violent, for the death of a violent thief on the other side of the world. How does that make for a better football community? More like a smaller football community. To keep up with this idiotic zeitgeist, every major sporting code in Australia has embraced this new form of racism, patronising some players as if their skin tone was some sort of disability and their achievements worthy of extra respect. The implication is that the fans, well, the white-skinned ones anyway, are to blame because they're racist. No wonder people are switching it off. Here's another answer. The Manly Seagulls NRL team tried to force players to wear a Guernsey that symbolised gay pride. Uh, earlier this year, seven players refused and coach Des Hasler called it an error by the club that, quote, caused significant confusion, discomfort and pain for many people, unquote. Hasler was sacked three months later, despite still having a year on his contract and having won two premierships for the club on the field and two as a coach. These days, woke politics trump sporting success every day of the week, no matter how much of a legend you are. Sporting codes are surviving these days, mostly on the back of advertising from betting companies, which is another point of disagreement with the fans. The Sydney Morning Herald reported this week that a survey found a whopping 62% of sports fans think the ads from betting companies need to go. Now there's a test for the sports administrators. Ditching the betting agencies and they'd have to ditch their lucrative salaries as well. Australia's love of sport was also usurped by something even less healthy earlier this year. Many Australians and the media cheered when Novak Djokovic, one of the greatest tennis players in history, was booted out of the country for daring not to disclose his COVID vaccine status. Sometime some between the early 1980s and this year, we went from a nation where a random spectator at the MCG could take a classic catch between tokes on a ciggy to a country that was afraid that a healthy sports star would discourage others from taking a vaccine to prevent a virus we knew was little worse than a common cold. The consequence of this for our health are serious, but for our culture, they're even worse. Sport used to be a unifying force for us. It was part of being Australian. But that was before sporting organisations started calling us all racist and shoving political messages down our throats. As a result, we're now unhealthier and less unified as a nation. As I've said before, sport, sport is inspiring enough without the politics. We should tell the administrators to get the hell out of politics and tell the players to just shut up and play. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews faced some uncomfortable questions today about a road accident in which he was involved in 2013. Andrews and his wife Catherine were in a car that struck Ryan Muleman, who was then 15 years old, at Blair Gowrie on the Mornington Peninsula. The Herald Sun reported today that Andrews and his wife neglected to help Ryan, who suffered a punctured lung, broken ribs and internal bleeding. Ryan is quoted saying, they left the scene 
without being tested for alcohol. His recollection now is that the car was speeding and came out of nowhere. He said, quote, I saw the man and woman looking down at me. I remember that they were standing next to me and looking down with horrific looks on their faces. They did not bend down to assist me, unquote. When Ryan's father tried to find out more about the incident a week later, his inquiries were stonewalled, the newspaper reported. This story is troubling, but its timing is also clearly strategic. Andrews faced a media conference today and refused 17 times to answer questions about the incident. Finally, the Melbourne media is doing what the media should do and giving Andrews less than a red carpet path to re-election. How will the rest of the campaign pan out? Well, let's ask the brilliant, articulate and thoroughly informed Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, Daniel Wild. Daniel, welcome. G'day, great to be with you. First, it seems like the uh, blowtorch is starting to be held to uh, Daniel Andrews. Do you sense that there's a shift in the campaign? Is it getting more difficult for him? I think there is a shift in the campaign and it's getting more difficult for Daniel Andrews and Labor. We've seen a lot more reporting on the significant economic problems here in Victoria, especially the debt, which has been escalating uh, rapidly. You know, Victoria right now already has more debt than New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined, and that's only going to increase over the coming years. And I think that the election, whilst it's going to be very hard for the coalition to win, I think it will be much closer than what a lot of people think because there is a lot of anti-Daniel Andrews sentiment in the outer suburbs. We saw big swings against Labor federally uh, in those outer suburban seats. Um, the challenge for the Liberals is that the people who swung against Labor were not as yet willing to give Liberals their first preference vote. Instead, they went to One Nation or UAP or the Liberal Democrats. So the question is at the state election, will those who are unhappy with Daniel Andrews primarily because of the lockdowns, will they then tick the box for Liberals in order to kick Daniel Andrews out? Or are they still a bit unsure about whether the Liberals are going to give them a good go? But like I say, I reckon it's going to be a lot closer than what the polls are showing at the moment. Well, there's another sign that it's close uh, as well. A report in The Age today that there are seven rural and regional electorates for which Labor has not yet found a candidate. We're only four weeks out from the election. Now, Daniel, we've seen some high-level departures from the parliamentary party, but why would Labor candidates, Labor candidates be hard to find? Do they know something we don't? Well, I assume it's to do with factional components of, of the Labor Party and the picking of those candidates. We've seen similar issues in New South Wales with the Liberal Party, of course. So uh, I, my, I'm surmising here, but I reckon that would be the, the main reason for this. But look, I think that Labor probably is on the nose in the outer suburban and regional parts of um, Victoria. And a lot of it, again, I come back to this point, a lot of it is to do with the lockdowns. And you made the point at the top of this discussion about the media. Um, the media was in lockstep with the Andrews government when it came to lockdowns. I mean, basically, for about six to 12 months, we were basically living in a one-party state where Labor and the coalition supported lockdowns. Uh, both, you know, The Age and The Herald Sun, which are the two major uh, newspapers in Victoria, supported lockdowns. So there was no real alternative view being put out there, even though a significant minority of the population was very disgruntled, especially those in the outer suburbs and the regions who uh, are lower income, 
you know, imagine you're a single mum with three kids living in a two-bedroom house trying to hold down your job and, and, and homeschool your kids. You know, it can't be done. If you're in the inner, you know, if you're in the inner city with a big five-bedroom house and you've got your own office and you can work from home, well, I'm not saying it's been good for you, but you can kind of get by. So that um, division we've seen in our society in Victoria and across Australia, I think, is is playing into that issue you've identified. The other thing that's changed recently, I'd say, is that whether or not you agreed with the lockdowns at the time, or well, if you did agree with the lockdowns at the at the time, as an ordinary citizen you're now being given plenty of reasons to change your mind about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fallout from the lockdowns has been significant. I mean, you've been talking about this and Alan Jones has been talking about it and uh, not enough, but a few others have been talking about it throughout the lockdown saying, look, this is going to be a big issue. The economic issues of lost jobs and closed businesses, but the mental health, you know, the, the psychological damage done, particularly to young Australians, um, has been immense, uh, the lost schooling, the lost opportunities. So I think there's a lot of people that feel that they've been dudded, that they went along with lockdowns and mandates because the major institutions of our society said that they were the right thing to do. And most Australians are fair-minded and said, well, look, maybe this is something we have to go along with. But people are waking up to see that, geez, this has imposed big costs on us. Uh, at the moment, we've got more cases and more deaths than we had in the middle of the lockdowns. So why did we have lockdowns to begin with? Weren't they supposed to stop this happening? So people have seen, no, they don't stop them, they defer it. You can't avoid a virus spreading, which is what you said, and we've all been saying this. So I think you're spot on that uh, as the costs have become apparent, uh, people are going, that that wasn't good. What, what was done to us by governments was not right. Now, you mentioned the uh, burgeoning debt of the state, uh, and there's been an example this week of Dan Andrews' cavalier attitude towards debt, and that is the case of finding a lazy $15 million to buy the, essentially buy the Diamonds national netball team. He sponsored the team through the state's tourism department after the team separated with former sponsor Gina Reinhardt over something her father said 40 years ago. But has this, I mean, this is a very rash decision of Andrews to throw $15 million at the netball team. Do you think that's starting to backfire as well? Look, I reckon it is. I understand from a political perspective why he wanted to do it, uh, what the strategy is, but I reckon it's backfired precisely because of the issue that you've mentioned. I mean, there's 160-odd billion dollars of debt in Victoria right now. So where is this money coming from? Is this the best investment of taxpayers' money? Well, most people are saying, well, no, it's not. Yes, if the economy is roaring and everything's under control, maybe you look at these kind of things. But at the end of the day, most Victorians are now understanding that the state is in significant financial difficulty and you can't just blame COVID. You can't just blame the lockdowns. There's massive cost overruns on pretty much every single major infrastructure project. You've got wages blowouts in the public sector uh, and you've got this issue of rising interest rates, which means that Victoria is very vulnerable because of all the interest costs on debt, which are now rising rapidly. And the more that you have to pay off your debt in terms of the interest costs, the less you have for schools, the less you have for roads, the less you have for hospitals, and it becomes a real issue. So. The debt and the economy and the, and, and the state's finances are becoming a much bigger issue as we head into the election in a few weeks' time. 
Jesus, not looking good for Andrews, I've got to say. Anyway, just um, staying with sport for a second, you've just released, the IPA has just released some polling that finds, as I said in my editorial earlier um, this evening, that sporting codes have become too politically correct. What figures did you, did you find, Dan? Well, what we found, uh, Fred, is that 61% of Australians agree with the statement that sporting codes like the AFL or the rugby, cricket, netball have become too politically correct. And this gets to an issue, which is that Australians are fed up with having these politically correct woke sermons delivered to them before sporting events. They're fed up with sporting stars and sporting captains uh, using their privileged platform to engage in campaigning for their own pet political causes. And the reason Australians have had enough of it is because it divides us. You know, you might not agree with what Pat Cummins thinks about climate change or whatever else, so you're going to feel excluded from coming to the sport because you go, well, I don't agree with him, so why do I have to listen to this uh, being put forward at a sporting event? And it's a real tragedy because sport has always united us as a nation. It's brought us together rich or poor, no matter your race, your religion, ethnicity or gender, you all come together, you celebrate, you cheer, you play together. It's one of the key glues of our social fabric. And it's such a shame that we have sports people like Pat Cummins or whoever else it might be, again, using their privileged platform. They should be representing all of us, not engaging in their politically correct campaigning. And Australians are just fed up with it and it should stop. I mean, they should just get on with it and play uh, just like we used to. <laughs> are you saying that Australian sports fans are going to the going to sporting events to watch sport? <laughs> they're, they're not going there to hear politics. No, and look, you make an important point, which is like everything's political these days. Yeah, uh, it's hard to escape politics. Sport uh, is, or at least until recently, has been one of the last holdouts where you could actually go to sport to get away from politics, to get away from work, to get away from the day-to-day -day things that you're dealing with and to focus on excellence on the sporting field. I mean, that's why people go, uh, to see players performing at their best, um, to celebrate their achievements, to get away, as I say, from politics, not to have it um, further inserted into our lives. So you're right, the idea that people would go to sport to watch sport uh, who, who would have thought? Well, well, I mean, taking it even further back in the old days, people used to go to the football so they could yell abuse at someone. You know, it was a sort of a release <laughs> valve. But anyway, I want to quote from your report because you say it very well. And the quote is, uh, throughout our history, sport has been one of the greatest unifying forces inspiring millions to pursue excellence in all walks of life. We cannot afford our pastimes to become the plaything of activists, unquote. Well, it's well said, Daniel. Well, and, that, and that's exactly what it is. It's becoming the plaything of activists. As I say, it's dividing us. But the other point I just make is how do you think it makes their teammates feel? I mean, what if they don't agree? Say you got Pat Cummins speaking out on climate change. What if you're in the locker room and you're sitting there going, well, geez, I don't agree with what my captain's saying and it's kind of putting me off a little bit. I reckon that would really undermine the camaraderie and the sort of the sport, the team, the teamwork that you need to gel together because you've got someone who's hogging the limelight, not because of their achievements on the sporting field, uh, but because they're making these statements and no doubt there's someone in Pat Cummins here telling him to do this. He's probably got PR people managing what he's saying. And so it really not only does it divide us as a society and as fans, 
but it also divides the locker room, which means you get a worse quality performance on the sporting field. And just getting back to state politics, because it's hard to avoid in uh, Victoria, um, Dan Andrews's big announcement recently is to return the state to the bad old days of state-owned, en- state-owned energy production, transmission and retail. Dan, what could possibly go wrong with that? Well, exactly. It's back to the bad old days, as you say. And look, they've completely botched the energy market. You know, short-sighted politicians at the state and federal level by getting rid of coal, uh, net zero, red tape, we're pushing baseload reliable power off the grid. We've got too much wind and too much solar that doesn't go when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. The amount of money you need to put in there to you know, firm up these unreliable forms of energy generation is immense. And so the only solution they have now after having completely wrecked the market, because no one's going to invest in coal in Victoria or around Australia because governments have made it clear that they don't want you. Yeah. It's not that coal is not viable. It's very viable. But no one's going to put their money behind it when they know it's going to be shut down because of government policy. I mean, here in Victoria, they said no more coal from 2035. So therefore, no one's going to invest in coal. So the idea that this is the market failing is a complete misnomer. It's governments that have wrecked the market. Now they're saying, well, we need to take it over. This is not going to end well for the people of Victoria or for families and small businesses around the country. Dan Andrews is is very keen for Victoria to be the first to have an offshore wind farm, isn't he? Is that right? Well, I believe so. Uh, But again, the issue here is that this is not going to resolve the issue. We have in this country an abundance of oil, an abundance of gas, an abundance of coal, uh, an abundance of uranium, but we're not allowed to use it because politicians say we can't. Uh, It's quite as simple as removing net zero, cutting red tape, repealing the ban on nuclear power. That's how we get reliable and affordable energy generation, not by building these you know, wind farms offshore, which are untested and experimental on a mass level. We're heading for a disaster. And uh, to be honest, we need to make sure that there's uh, clarity in the debate on this. Well, Daniel, what you're saying makes perfect sense. When are we going to hear arguments like that from the coalition in Victoria? Well, it's a good question. And the coalition in Victoria has gone further than Labor at the federal level in terms of their commitment to cut emissions by 50% by the year 2030, which compares to 43% by Labor at the federal level. So, look, I don't know what's driving this. They might think that there's votes to be won in the inner cities, and look, perhaps there is, but they need to have their eye on the long-term future of the state. Don't forget, Victoria was once one of the great industrial and manufacturing powerhouses, not only of Australia, but around the world, in large part because of the brown coal that is here. You know, it runs 24-7, it's reliable, it's affordable, and that is how you have a manufacturing sector that employs tens of thousands of people. There's no vision for the future of the state. There's no vision for how can Victoria and Australia, for that matter, once again become a great industrial and manufacturing um, powerhouse. Instead, there's a narrow focus on a small number of well-off inner-city voters who, to be honest, don't share mainstream Australian values anyway. And didn't suffer during the lockdowns. Now, before I before before you go, Dan, I just want to switch over to the US. Uh, finally, the midterm elections in the United States on Tuesday are going to they're going to be closely watched even here in Australia. I think because they're so crucial. 
Now, they will surely be a gauge on how much Americans have learned to dislike their corrupt and doddery old president. But that president being Joe Biden, Joe Biden delivered a speech in Washington yesterday warning people to be patient, warning American voters to be patient, because the votes might take days to count. Now, Daniel, you don't have to have seen the uh, seen him deliver this speech to hear alarm bells ringing. Do you think the fix is already in? Well, I'm not sure the fix is in uh, quite yet, but it's concerning when you have the president saying, you know, we're not going to know the results of the election on the night. And we saw all the issues in the last election with the mail-in ballots and everything that was happening there. So... Look, I mean, American democracy has always been very messy, but it feels like it's messier now than it's ever been. But you're completely right. It's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen. My, uh, What I'm going to be most interested in is to see if Blake Masters can get up in Arizona as the senator there, uh, because that's going to be a real indication of how strong the Trump momentum is. You know, if someone like Blake Masters can get up from being very far behind in the polls only a few weeks ago, it's now getting close to being tied. That would suggest that there's a lot of momentum for Trump. And then if he gets a lot of his MAGA people up in Congress and Senate, then, you know, the odds are that he'll run again. And, um, you know, that'll be, if nothing else, very entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> Might even revive CNN. <laughs> Daniel Wild, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Fred. That's Daniel Wild of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. Well, at its heart, wokeism is all about telling other people what to say and think. Whether your actions or behaviour contribute to anything worthwhile is beside the point. It's all about being part of the right side, sympathising with the right cause. And if you don't, then nothing you actually do will amount to more than a hill of beans. Here's a good example by former AFL player Tony Armstrong who now appears as a commentator on the project and the ABC, dismissing the good things mining magnate Gina Reinhart does for the nation. The pro-Gina PR push has gone into overdrive with article after article about Gina's philanthropic niceness. 300 million in royalty payments to Indigenous Australians over here, community funds making it rain over there. It's just money, money, money for the good of blackfellas everywhere. You can see from his contempt that actually helping what he calls blackfellas means nothing to him. And what really matters? Whether Gina agrees with racist comments her father made about poisoning unassimilated Aborigines 40 years ago. Us blackfellas are big on truth telling. So in the spirit of reconciliation, Gina, what do you think about your dad's comments? We just want to know what you reckon. Send us an email or come join us on the desk. Just let us know, Gina. As Australia's richest person, your words and opinions matter. Do they matter more than the millions of dollars she gives away? The tens of thousands of jobs she creates? Or the billions her company pays in taxes? Does the fact that she provides so much tangible help to blackfellas suggest she does not agree with her father's sentiments? How could she if she's so generous towards them? That's never enough for the worksters, who sim who, to whose symbolism and words are more important than actual deeds. As I've said before, the demand for racism in Australia is far greater than the supply. 
So the people whose careers rely on calling out racism often need to simply confect it in order to stay relevant. Yesterday though, Armstrong was on the receiving end of actual racism. He received an appalling email objecting to his stance against Reinhardt. He tweeted a screen grab of it with some bits redacted and received overwhelming support, as he should. The ABC took this so seriously that it referred the matter to the police. Armstrong might have mixed feelings about this. This would be the same police force that he claims followed him into a cafe a couple of years ago and asked for his ID because there had been a robbery nearby. He said, quote, when I proved who I was, they just scoffed and walked away, unquote. If the police investigation fails to come up with anything, it will probably be used as further proof of this. We talk about, um, you know, needing to accept where we've come from to be able to move forward. This country still can't accept that it's a racist country. And here is where Armstrong and I agree. I can't accept that we are still a racist country either. I can't accept that kids in outback townships are raised amongst violence, alcoholism, unemployment, filth and despair. They receive none of the love, happiness, joy, education and opportunity that Armstrong himself received and should be the birthright for all Australian kids. Whenever white kids are born into disgraceful neglect, they are rescued and helped through the foster family system, but not Aboriginal kids, because to help them would be, what's that word again? Racist. Thank goodness for people like Gina Reinhart, who is more concerned with prosperity for Indigenous kids here and now, instead of what her dad said, and which we all agree was repulsive 40 years ago. She's doing more for the Indigenous than Armstrong and his inner city media mates will ever do. And they know it. Well, it's been a week of rather depressing news, but the one good item this week was that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will not be going to the COP27 climate gab fest in Egypt starting on Sunday. Climate change, minister, uh, climate change and energy minister Chris Bowen will be going, of course. But holding him back from a gig like that would be like standing between Rebecca Judd and the celebrity birdcage at Flemington on Melbourne Cup Day. And just as it's customary to turn up at the birdcage in clothes worth the equivalent of two weeks' wages to most people, it's also customary to arrive at a COP conference bearing promises to fleece your own constituents in the pursuit of net zero emissions. What will Chris Bowen promise the climate elites when his jet touches down in the desert this Sunday? Blackouts across Southeast Asia? Ritualistic demolition of more coal-fired power stations? Blanketing good quality farmland in solar panels made by Uyghur slaves in China? Let's bring in my next guest, Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Back Battleground, each Friday night here on ADH TV, and the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, to get his thoughts. <laughs> Nick, welcome. Hi, Fred. How are you? You're dead right, by the way. I mean, COP, this is COP27, I think, right? It stands for, oh, I can't remember what COP stands for or something. <laughs> but anyway, it's the big climate. Climate opportunists and, and yeah. yeah. They've been doing this for 30 years with very little effect other than to slow down 
world economy. But it is, it's like, you've, you've got it just right there. It is like a sort, it's like the Olympics for virtue signaling, isn't it? <laughs> you know, each one has to come along and just outshine the other in their, in their commitment to not just action on climate change, but real action on climate change. It has yeah. to be real. Uh, and I noticed that um, even Greta Thunberg's had enough of this. She's not going to this one, apparently. She, said, she came out and said it's all about greenwashing. So I think... Although she comes in from a slightly different angle than you and I, she's seen through this whole circus, <laughs> hasn't she? Well, I wonder if Leonardo DiCaprio will make a cameo. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's 30, I think more than 30,000 registered people for this event. So oh, my goodness. It, and it, each it, one uh, in a private jet. Oh, that's right. That's right. I don't know how, how the airport there at uh, Cairo is for space, yeah. but it's, it's going to look pretty crowded. They always do. It, you know, it really has taken on a size of its own. And I think it was South Australia, wasn't it? Um, it was arguing that they should bid for COP27. And, and it was very much like bidding for the Olympics. And, 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 and I think, but it had the same arguments behind it. You know, this, this will add so many uh, billions to the South Australian economy by bringing in tourists and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and enlarge the state's carbon footprint, but no one's mentioning that. That's right. I've actually been to Sharm el-Sheikh. It's on the uh, southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, it, back in those days, this is back in my backpacking days, it was just a place where people went to sit on the beach and go snorkeling because the, uh, the edge drops off very dramatically there. And everyone, I remember everyone being warned to be careful of sharks because it's, it's really deep water and you could get uh, quite surprisingly attacked. Mm. But uh, I think the sharks will be staying away from the delegates if they venture into the water. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, definitely they will, especially if Putin's there. <laughs> I mean, it's because we all know the sharks are afraid of, the only person exactly. on earth they're afraid of is Putin. But, <laughs> uh, joking apart, Fred, I did actually go to a, a cop conference once, or I didn't actually go to the conference. I went to a pre-conference conference at Copenhagen. Uh, and why did I go? Well, you know, they were paying for journalists to come over and just feel, feel what the place was like. So we did get to go before the COP conference and talk to a lot of people involved. Uh, but they really lost me. I thought, great, Copenhagen, I'll go and see, I'll be able to meet Bjorn Longborg, you know, from the Copenhagen Consensus, the think tank he used to run. You know, he is by far the world's most sensible person on this subject. Uh, and I turned up and I said, when do we get to meet Bjorn Longborg? And I got this very awkward expression from the organisers. Well, we haven't invited him. <laughs> at, that, at that point, I knew I was at the wrong gig. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, goodness. Anyway, let's, um, let's turn to the cost of energy, the cost of the policies that they are so gleefully proposing over at COP27. Here's a graph that you've put together correlating the cost of energy in Australia with the introduction of renewables in our system. Now, the parallels are uncanny. The way the, way the cost of energy and the presence of renewables correlates is just crazy. Talk us through it, yeah. Nick. So they, these are figures that I've managed to find on the, uh, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, so I presume they're pretty kosher figures. The blue lines, that is, that's basically renewable energy. So from the early, from uh, the early 2000s, it starts to trickle in, right? There's that stage, just uh, wind turbines and rooftop solar. Uh, and, and so there's a bit in there by the time uh, Kevin Rudd comes to power. And then Kevin comes in and says, it's the greatest economic, economic and moral challenge of our time. And then he puts this renewable energy target in, which I think was about 2% under Howard. 
uh, he suddenly raises that to 20. The effect of that, of course, is all the renewable energy companies come rushing in because there's all these implicit subsidies. So you can see there on the graph between 2007, 2013, the amount of renewable energies we've got virtually doubles. And hey, presto, that red line, which is retail prices, they double too. So the background of this, of course, is, well, you know, Chris Bowen tells us over and over again that renewables are the cheapest form of power. But it just doesn't stack up. I mean, anybody like you and I who paid electricity bills for more than the last five minutes know this, right? Electricity bills, basically, I mean, the other thing about that graph, I don't, if you still get it up there, then up until, this is an interesting one, Fred, up until 2000, so between 1980 and 2000, the price of energy actually went down. I mean, it looks as if it's gone up on that graph, but when you factor in inflation, it's actually gone down a bit. So for, for at least 20 years before renewables, renewable energy was getting cheaper. Uh, and then we introduce renewables and it goes up. Because correlation isn't causation, right? It might just no, be mere right. coincidence. Yeah. Mere coincidence yeah. that the price graph <laughs> follows yeah. the energy graph exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, there's so much correlation that causation has to be the answer because, as you say, even, even when renewables dip a bit, so does the price. It's incredible. That's right. I mean, can there really be any doubt that renewables are expensive now? No doubt whatsoever. And it doesn't take... You don't have to be, you know, an engineer to work it out, do you? I mean... No. We love them, and like we love solar panels and windmills, all right. But you wouldn't go and buy a car if the dealer said to you, "I've got this great car. It's twice expensive as anything else in the showroom, uh, but it only works for six hours a day." And <laughs> I can't tell you which six hours they'll be. But anyway, you'll enjoy. Like it, it's just not. It, yeah, but Nick, you're not factoring in the. Uh the, the sanctimony that you get when you're driving that car around. I mean, it might only be six hours a day, but gee, the feeling you get, it's... The, uh... the Tesla, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the, the Tesla, I mean, as we showed last week on, on Battleground, we, we put up a graph and we spoke to Mark Mills, which was, it, these are Volkswagen's figures, right? It's a graph taken with the figures that Volkswagen put out that show that you've got to drive a Tesla for at least 100,000 kilometres before it becomes less, it has a smaller carbon footprint than say a Toyota Hilux diesel. And that's because it comes with such a huge carbon debt, you know, 139 kilos of minerals go into that battery, which requires excavating hundreds of tonnes of earth. So before it even gets to the showroom, it's got a lot of carbon to offset, whereas a diesel has some carbon to offshore manufacturing, but it's, it's a lot less. Hundreds of tonnes of earth. 250 to tonnes of Earth, I'm giving away my column for Monday. Oh, to, it, <laughs> you read it here first. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, this would be news to somebody like Chris Bowen, who's probably never been near any mine in his life. But anybody who's been remotely involved with mining knows that, you know, the lithium or whatever you get out of it is only a tiny proportion of the dirt you've got to dig out of the ground, right? Large quantities of dirt have to come out and they have to go for a refining process, which just happens to be one of the most expensive, energy expensive things we do in Australia actually is mining. So all that goes on just to get that little 139 kilos of minerals for your battery. And uh, then they go in the battery and you're all set to go, except you've got to drive 100,000 kilometres. <laughs> and that's even assuming that you only, you only, because you're only allowed to charge that Tesla for about an hour and a half each day, you know, at that point in the middle of the day when there's so much solar that you, you can guarantee that's 100% renewable in there. 
I, I think that these little details, you know, we've had a, such an oversimplified debate, haven't we? Dumbed we down have. debate. That's right. And oversimplified to, is the word. You know, That's right. If I tried to say this on ABC Q&A, like nobody would believe me. I'd be booed. They'd say, oh, that can't be right. But, I, you know, these are all reputable figures. I mean, they're from the ABS, those figures we just put up. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, if it doesn't fit the narrative... Yeah, they don't want to know no, about it. No. And, and the other bit of the narrative you're not mentioning is what do you do with the car when it's useless? When, you know, when the battery's no longer usable, you, you're going to bury it in the ground. Those are toxic chemicals in that thing. Anyway, let's yeah, talk about exactly. gas. Mm. Let's talk about gas because gas prices are increasing uh, as well as the, uh, the cost of energy as a result of renewable. Mm. Mm. But Chris Bowen, who's Chris Bowen blaming for the increase in gas prices? Well, for a while he was blaming Vladimir Putin, of course, you know, which I call the, the Putin ate my homework excuse. <laughs> uh, and he still does when he gets a chance. It's Putin's fault for his war. But the thing is, we can blame Putin for some big things, right? Like human rights abuses, uh, like, like uh, having people shot in the street, <laughs> like forcing them out of windows. And of course, the big one invading Ukraine. I mean, sure, he's to blame for that. But I don't think... Putin had anything to do with persuading Dan Andrews to put a moratorium on exploring gas, right? <laughs> and yet that's what's driving prices here, is lack of supply. Uh, yeah. and po Putin, I don't think, had any anything to do with the greenies in the New South Wales court that are de delaying the, the Narrabri mine for as long as they possibly can through lawfare. So we, the, what, in the end, our, our, our energy price is here because of shortage and the shortage is entirely self-inflicted. So, well, speaking of New South Wales, the Treasurer, Matt Keane, who's one of the greenest politicians in the country, despite being a member of the Liberal Party, he's complaining that West Australia won't give New South Wales cheap gas. And as you mentioned, the New South Wales government has been sitting on a deposit of gas at Narrabri, which Santos has wanted to extract for years. So is it a bit lame for Keane to be complaining that WA won't give him cheap gas when the, ga when the state's got plenty of it anyway? Look, it's not, not for me to describe Matt Keane as being lame. I, I wouldn't do that, but I'll leave that for others to say. <laughs> well, me, for example. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I'm not encouraging you. <laughs> but I mean, the, the fact is that if you go back to Matt Keane's energy roadmap, which came out, I think, about three four years ago perhaps, no, three years ago, you will struggle to find a reference to gas in there. Like everything's going to be renewables, more wind, more solar, uh, batteries, of course, he's going to build big batteries. And there's barely any mention of the role of gas. I know because I've been through that report quite, quite carefully. And yet gas is what is, you know, basically, it's like, a, you know, trying to mop up after an incontinent uncle, isn't it? That, that, <laughs> <laughs> gas is what we use to mash, mop, mop, mop up the mess that renewables create by, by firming the muck. You know, we fire up. It's actually quite a good way to do it, right? You fire up the gas when the, the renewable, because you can start it up quickly, and that's how you, you, you make up for the fact that they're, they're not on most of the time. So that's fine, but you've got to acknowledge that. Uh, and actually, it's interesting if you look at the energy uh, profile of South Australia, and WA, in South Australia, it's stark. You know, they've lost, you remember, they, they didn't just close their power stations down. They had sort of public holiday, I think, on the day they blew them up. So they've got no coal. Uh, they've got a lot of renewables. And they also, thanks to their, they've got the Cooper Basin 
in, in reasonable proximity, they get a reasonable supply of gas. So gas is basically keeping the lights on in South Australia. So it's gas and renewables. In WA, it's, it's pretty much the same, except they've got some coal. So that's, that obviously is a short-term solution. It's not the long-term solution, but if you want to make up for the closure of coal-fired power stations, gas is the, what they're turning to all around the world. Yeah, uh, and we've got, to start, we've got to start extracting more of it. Well, we do. I wish it, were, I wish it was more of an election issue, but uh, it doesn't seem to be. Anyway, let's talk about uh, mortgage rates because some economists are forecasting retail, <coughs> excuse me, retail mortgage rates of 8% next year. That's going to add $2,000 a month to the average family budget compared to before the election. Now, Nick, housing, house prices are tumbling as a result, but I'd suggest that the problem is not the interest rates. It's the cost of the houses in the first place. Hmm. I mean, if, 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 if we didn't have to spend so much actually buying the house, then the interest rates wouldn't be so uh, catastrophic when they go up because we wouldn't be quite so in debt. So what, in your opinion, is causing house prices to be so high? Yeah. Well, same as gas, right? Lack of supply. You know, it's the basic thing called supply and demand, which I learned about at school. I don't think they really teach it at school anymore, do they? We <laughs> seem to have a whole generation of politicians who don't seem to understand the term, you know, that, that if when supply, if demand exceeds supply, the price goes up. Now, that's economics 101. It's capitalism 101, if you like. Uh, but, you know, whether it's gas or whether it's housing prices, they're not joining the dots. You know, they're putting it down to other things. I'm sure there's a lot else in housing prices too. I mean, there's a, as you know, there's an awful lot of government charges and taxes go into a house now, which actually take, if you're building on, you know, some, if you've managed to find a block out there near Liverpool or something, you are spending more on government regular, regulatory Indeed. costs than you Indeed. are on actually the but bricks the, but and the key thing is, But the key thing is supply. You mm. know, and, and the thing that, the, the one obstacle, the one key obstacle between that supply being made and the people who want to buy it is the government. So, mm. you know. And you go like, anybody who doesn't live in Australia and you tell them about this, and they go, what? You've got more land than anywhere. Exactly, you know? exactly. It doesn't make yeah. sense to somebody. And, and we've got cities that have, uh, you know, far lower density than, than comparable cities around the world. So we've got plenty of scope. It's not like we're yeah. running out of land, but there just seems to be this mood these days, Fred. You know, we're but running out of be, everything. But the we're thing, running out of exactly. Everything. But the problem is, Nick, that's too late for the people who have just mortgaged the hilt. It and is. next and look, year they'll be facing 8% eight, 8 interest rates. Yeah, so. I mean, it's easy to, to poke fun at them sitting around eating their mashed avocado on toast or whatever they pay money for, you know, <laughs> the sort of stereotypical view of millennial and then whinging about not being able to afford a a house and we could say, look, it was tough for us and we had to have interest rates at 500% or whatever they were under Keating. But but the truth is it is actually harder. I mean, it the, is. the cost That's of right. a house yep. is many multiples more yep. than the wage and it's an it was then. it's an intergenerational problem. You it know, is. they look at us as, as having had it easy and we did. And, uh, and we should look at them. And one more thing, Fred, when you and I started starting out and this dates us, we didn't have... 10% of our wages garnished compulsory by the government, did Indeed. we, to go into super? That didn't That's exist. Right. Yep. So yep. essentially we're taking 10% off the 
before they even start. You've yeah. even paid off their hex debt and then they've got these expensive houses to boot. It's a real, real problem. The cards are stacked against them. Yeah. Now, quickly before you go, Nick, there was a really interesting uh, turn of phrase out of Taronga Zoo this week when the lions escaped. Can you remember what the phrase was, when they, how they described it? They said, they said um, uh, first of all, they put they issued this release to say that, that five lions have been located outside their their enclosure. So they, they didn't, <laughs> it wouldn't have scared anybody by using the word escape, you know, lines of escape. So they've been located outside their enclosure. And then they said, uh, having looked into it, it appeared to be an integrity issue regarding the perimeter fence. <laughs> so what was that? I can think of two things. Either some twit left the gate open or somebody had cut a hole in the fence or something. Well, imagine <laughs> imagine if the lions had attacked anyone, they could have reported that some zoo guests were suffering from a case of limb detachment syndrome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but if, it was, if, if the problem was just integrity of the gates, and this is obviously why we need an anti-corruption commission to go <laughs> look at... That's right. You know, is, is, oh. is the honesty or the nobleness, there's something wrong with that fence, oh, right, that needs, right. To be, yep. needs to be bought needs before to... a star chamber. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Nick Cater, thanks so much for your time. Good on you, Fred. That's Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday here on ADH TV. Well, she's done it again. Hillary Clinton has come out in her usual snooty way and has suggested that American voters aren't smart enough to understand how critical it is to vote Democrat next week. This is for the Americans, uh, America's midterm elections. The former US Secretary of State and 2016 presidential candidate was speaking at a far left event where she managed to offend the intelligence of voters by saying, quote, I'm not sure they really understand the threats to their way of life, unquote. Well, I'd say it's the fact that the voters do understand the threats of their way of life from Democrat rule. That's why the polls are predicting Republicans to romp home. It's not Clinton's first rodeo. She managed to offend voters in 2016 by saying half of Donald Trump's supporters were deplorable. That's a sure way of winning votes. Not. When it comes to the Democrats, it is no longer the political party of Roosevelt, Truman, Kennedy and Johnson. It's a political rump where the geriatric, always confused Joe Biden leads the way. Then there's 82-year-old Nancy Pelosi, Kamala, I'm wearing a blue suit, Harris. And then there's the so-called squad, a radical group of socialist Congresswomen who are repulsed by everything America stands for, plus its institutions. Put simply, they are unfit to govern. Only the Republicans can produce strong leadership when it comes to the economy, liberalizing trade, keeping global adversaries in check and rejecting wokeism. And when the voters in America comprehensively flush this experiment in wokeism down the drain of history, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and his team of populist, environmental and cultural elitist should feel a very cold shiver. It's not too late for them to change course for the sake of the nation, but if they don't, they'll be next. And just before I go, Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu will go down as one of the most formidable political figures of the 21st century. There's just no doubt about it. The former prime minister has staged an incredible political comeback 
after Israel's coalition government collapsed one year after it was formed. Why did the coalition go to tatters? It's simple. It was a motley crew of a coalition. Basically, Netanyahu's former protege broke away and entered into an agreement with the centrist Yair Lapid. They had a power-sharing deal, and then a small Islamist party, the United Arab List, joined the coalition. Essentially, it was an anti-Netanyahu coalition. It was never going to last because all these minor parties came from different political persuasions and could never agree on anything. So after failing four times in a row to secure an outright majority and spending 16 months in opposition, Israel's longest serving prime minister is back. After five elections in less than four years, many Israelis will want stability. At the time of writing, the tally for Israel's parliamentary elections shows the group of right-wing and religious parties supporting Netanyahu are almost certain to have up to 65 seats in the 120 seats in the parliament. Why this is a remarkable story is because Netanyahu has done this before. His first stint as prime minister was in 1996. That ended in 1999 when he was defeated at the election. Then in 2009, he was re-elected and defeated last year by Bennett, a tech millionaire turned politician. Bennett admired Netanyahu for years and his memoir begins with a note of gratitude to his former boss and ends with a chapter entitled, What I Learned from Netanyahu. That proves how big a figure he is. Amazingly, in Netanyahu's just published autobiography, he says that former US President Bill Clinton admitted to trying to prevent his first prime ministerial victory in 1996. He also reveals that Joe Biden acknowledged to him that the Democratic Party was no longer staunchly pro-Israel. The same goes here with the Labor Party. <clears throat> but this is something the lefties will hate. Netanyahu writes in the, writes the Trump years were, quote, the best ever for the, the Israeli-American alliance, unquote. He went on to describe Trump as a, quote, true trailblazer, unquote. How is that allowed to go into print? That'll send those suffering from Trump derangement syndrome into a spin. But there you go, to add to his life of epic achievements, Benjamin Netanyahu's back as Prime Minister of Israel, the one democracy in the Middle East that upholds human rights, defends freedom, and is an ally of the United States. That should be celebrated. Well, that's all from me. Alan Jones may or may not be back next week, but either way, we here at ADH TV will continue to bring you the best news commentary in Australia. We wish Alan a quick recovery. Don't forget to tune in for Nick Cater's Battleground at 8 o'clock tomorrow, followed by David Flint's Save the Nation. And I'll see you back here next week. Good night.